Welcome to Faith Life Fellowship Podcast with Dr. Scott Forrest. Please enjoy today's message. Well, as I promised some months ago, the Lord has led me to begin to sort of show another side of me on a regular basis here in the Sunday morning service. And that means that every six, eight weeks or so, you're going to get a science in the Bible related presentation, uh, sermon, message, whatever you want to call it. Uh, this weekend, I was involved in the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist Conference uh, sponsored by Ratio Christi on the campus of UNCW. And Dr. Frank Turek was the highlighted speaker on Friday night and Saturday morning. He was amazing. And I was uh, privileged to be one of the breakout speakers uh, Saturday morning. And so uh, it was a great time. And I know a lot of you uh, didn't get a chance to come. So... You're going to get to hear it again, amen, this morning. Now, I want to caution you, this is a smoke-free zone. Yeah? Don't let no smoke come out of your ears or your brain as I talk about this stuff, okay? This is easy to understand. And if there's something you don't understand, just kind of gloss over it. I promise I will give you some kind of bottom line that you can hold on to, amen? Don't be intimidated. You know what they say about people with PhDs, right? If they're not doing something to help people, that might as well stand for post-hole digger. <laughs> and that's an insult to hard-working post-hole diggers. You know? So I changed it to a better version. I'm past having doubts, amen, about what Jesus has done for me. Glory to God. Let me begin by saying, after my first book came out, Reflections of Space and Time, Finding God and Finding Direction in Life, I found myself thrust into the realm of what is known as apologetics, that's using logic and reason and science to argue the case for God. I found myself thrust into that realm and soon became committed to tearing down the walls between science and the Bible. Amen? And my main goal when I teach along these lines is to dispel the myth that you have to sacrifice your intellect to accept the fundamental claims of Christianity. Nothing could be further from the truth. When it comes to questions concerning the origin of the universe, the origin of man, or the existence of God, I want to embolden believers not to be intimidated by people with degrees, some of whom sound scientific, but are not scientific at all. In fact, when you investigate their theories, it's pretty easy to expose serious flaws in their logic and scientific reasoning. Just remember, a seeker of truth, like a good detective, will always follow the evidence wherever the trail leads, regardless of any presuppositions about the existence of God. So this morning I'd like to spend a little time framing the debate. I call it science and the Bible. Are they compatible? I only have time to touch on some hot button issues for the sake of time. I, it would just The normal length of this presentation is about an hour and a half. An hour's worth of material and a half hour question and answer. We're not going to do question and answer this morning. <laughs> so just save your questions to afterwards. Ask Jesus, ask the Holy Spirit, or ask me. And if I know the answer, I'll, I'll tell you. If I don't know the answer, I'll say, you know what? I just don't know. 
Amen. So, science and the Bible, are they compatible? I believe that St. Augustine, the well-known philosopher and theologian of the 4th and 5th centuries, I believe he said it the best. He believed that science could not contradict the claims of Orthodox Christianity because God the Creator and God the Redeemer are the same God. Therefore, Augustine argued that scientific truth and biblical truth cannot contradict one another. So, listen to this amazing quote by St. Augustine, a very wise man who lived about 1,600 years ago, and I'm amazed at the wisdom that this guy had centuries ago. He says, In matters that are obscure and far beyond our vision, even in such as we may find treated in Holy Scripture, different interpretations are sometimes possible without prejudice to the faith we have received. In such a case, we should not rush in headlong and so firmly take our stand on one side that if further progress in the search of truth justly undermines this position, we too fall with it. Now, I've had a lot of time to think about what Augustine said here, so let me break this down for you. What he's saying is, there are some conflicts that arise which even pit fellow believers against one another. And as long as the conflict does not involve certain fundamentals of the faith, like the virgin birth and the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's room for differences of opinions and even differences of interpretations of certain scriptures. Amen? If it's not essential to your salvation, it's okay to agree to disagree on certain issues. A prime example is old earth creationism versus young earth creationism. Now, I am an old earth creationist. I believe the earth is old, but the history of man is relatively young. 6,000 years or so. I think the earth is about 4.5 billion years old, just like the scientists say that it is. Now, the young earth creationists believe the earth is 6,000 years old, and the history of man is 6,000 years old. And we can debate both sides, but in the end, we have to agree to disagree and realize that we're fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're going to heaven for one reason. We believe Jesus paid the price for us to be saved, healed, delivered, and set free. Amen? Amen. All right. So in cases like this, we need to be willing to take another look at our interpretation of Scripture or another look at the available scientific data. Or sometimes we need to do both to resolve or reconcile the conflict, the apparent conflict between science and the Bible. I maintain that there are no conflicts. There are just apparent, seeming conflicts. But if we look hard enough, we will find the answer. With all that said, I agree wholeheartedly with St. Augustine. I believe science and the Bible are absolutely compatible, even when it seems that they are not. Although the language of science and the Bible may be different when it comes to describing the universe around us, the truth expressed are absolutely compatible. Amen. Yesterday when I was talking to these college students, I said, listen, pardon me. 
Uh, I am a former college professor, but I'm also a pastor and a preacher. So if I give you a line of logic and then I say amen at the end, that's the reason. <laughs> so when faced with an apparent contradiction between science and the Bible, there simply has to be an answer. Why? Because God's not schizophrenic. There must be a way to bring the scientific record and the biblical record into harmony. That means we need to be diligent when it comes to the tough questions of our day. We've got to be willing to continue the search for the answer until we find it. We've got to know before we start that these two expressions of truth have to be in agreement because they come from the same source. Amen? They come from God Almighty. God the Creator is the God of science. Amen. Amen? I want to talk a little bit about the trial of Galileo. Are you doing it remotely? Most excellent. <laughs> Most excellent. I want to talk a little bit about the trial of Galileo. It may seem like a boring topic. That's why I picked this boring Rembrandt painting of the trial of Galileo to lull you into a false sense that it's going to be boring because it's not going to be boring. <laughs> Although the feud between biblical truth and scientific truth goes back centuries, I think it really intensified during the trial of Galileo, the pioneer astronomer of the 17th century. In 1633, when the Reformation and the Renaissance were really gaining steam, were beginning to bear enormous fruit in the realm of the arts and literature and scientific exploration and scientific knowledge. A Galileo was tried for heresy for teaching the Copernican model of the solar system. That is, that the Earth and the other planets revolve around the sun. Hallelujah. This view was directly supported by the scientific evidence and the data collected by Galileo himself with the telescope that he personally invented and built. Yet it was in direct opposition to the traditional teaching of the church which preached a Ptolemaic model of the solar system that the sun and the other planets revolved around a fixed earth. In fact, it was also the prevailing view in the scientific community. And for quite some time because of the influence of Aristotle in the 4th century B.C. and Ptolemy in the 2nd century A.D. Galileo, get this, Galileo, who was a fervent believer, was nevertheless convicted of heresy and was forced to recant his beliefs and spent the rest of his life under house arrest. Sadly, the whole episode was viewed by the church as a triumph of the Bible over science. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about scripture misinterpretation and misapplying scriptures. In the case of Galileo and the church, it was a lack of scientific data which contributed greatly to a misinterpretation of scripture. Galileo had some data, but even he didn't have all the data that he needed to solve this puzzle, to reconcile the two, science and the Bible. Here's some of the scriptures that were used at the center of the debate during that time. Uh, Psalm 93, verse 1. 
says the world, the earth also is established, fixed, that it cannot be moved. Of course, the church interpreted that to mean that the earth was fixed in the center of the universe and everything else revolved around it, including the sun and the planets. Then there was Psalm 19, verse 5 and 6. The sun is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now I want to stop right there and have a little bit of fun with this. Okay? I want to introduce a little uh, revelation. The word there where it says, the sun's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run a race. That word rejoices means to jump up and down and leap for joy. Okay, so it involves oscillation. And if you know Jewish custom, it's talking about the bridegroom coming out of his bedchamber. And I can't remember whether it's after the wedding night or when he's coming out to go get his bride. But in either case, he's pretty excited when he comes out. I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it. <laughs> well, I got to put my readers on now. I jolted my eyeballs. <laughs> so, let's progress on here. Paraphrase. These verses mean that the sun follows a literal path as it moves through the heavens, rising and falling, as it completes its circuit. If you're on the earth, the sun rises in the east, it tracks across the horizon in a circuit that ends at the other end of the earth in the west, and then it, the sun sets. So they limited their view of this scripture to the earthbound observer's point of view. But I want to tell you ahead of time that God was giving them a God's eye view of what's going on. So I think you'd agree with me that more information was needed for them to realize that the sun did not revolve around the earth. And maybe the feud could have been avoided if both sides had waited for more information to come to light. The problem is, it took a couple hundred years for us to produce the instruments capable of measuring the movement of heavenly bodies to a precise degree. But here's what we know now. The earth is fixed or established in a stable orbit and revolves around the sun at a velocity of 67,000 miles an hour. I bet you didn't know you were going that fast. The sun is at the center of our solar system and it revolves around the center of our home galaxy, the Milky Way, at a mind-boggling velocity of 515,000 miles an hour. Furthermore, the sun oscillates up and down with respect to the galactic plane at a velocity of 15,660 miles an hour. So armed with this information which technology allowed us to gather, let's take another look at the scripture. As I said, it turns out that the word translated as rejoices in Psalm 19.6 actually means to leap or jump with joy. You put all this together... And we can conclude, as we said before, that the sun follows a literal path as it moves through the heavens, 
rising and falling as it completes its circuit, but not in the way that the church thought it did or even in the way that Galileo thought that it did. They had an earthbound view, but the scripture offers us a God's eye view. Slide. This is an artist's rendering of what the sun actually does. Right there towards the edge of the Milky Way galaxy is our sun, which oscillates up and down 250 light years above and below the plane of the galaxy. Isn't that awesome? So the sun literally jumps up and down as it travels through the heavens like a bridegroom rejoicing, just as the Bible declared 3,000 years ago. They just didn't have enough information to realize their view was too small. They needed a God's eye view. Glory to God. Now I heard that, uh, I guess about a hundred years ago, they apologized, the Catholic Church apologized to Galileo, but he'd been in the grave for 300 years. <laughs> That's a little late coming. So it just took science a few hundred years to catch up with the Bible, amen? All right, second hot button issue we're going to touch on. We're going to get back to space because you know I'm a space nut. But I want to talk about evolution. Are evolution and the Bible compatible in any way? You've all seen this chart. It's in junior high and senior high textbooks or, or middle school and high school textbooks. It's in all the college textbooks. And it's taught as fact, not as theory. And it irritates me. Amen. It's lazy science. It's lazy intellectualism. So you see, and I want to correct a, a misconception. People say, well, I didn't, I didn't evolve from an ape. Well, that's not what the theory of evolution says. So get it right if you're going to argue with your friends. The theory of evolution says that man and apes evolved from a common ancestor. That's what they believe. It's still poppycock. Just make sure you get your facts straight when you argue with them. Some people think that this is a more accurate rendition of the evolution of man. <laughs> he went from a tree-dwelling ape to being obsessed with his tablet or device. He started out hunched over, he got up straight, and then he hunched over his tablet or his mobile device. That's hilarious. That's a laugh out loud hilarious. In fact, that's the reason I grabbed that slide. I laughed out loud when I saw it. That's, that is exactly right. And it makes about as much sense as the other chart, to be honest with you. Here's the way I look at it. I taught math and statistics for years, so for me, when it comes to evolutionary theory, it comes down to, it boils down to probability. You don't even have to point out that evolutionary theory violates the second law of thermodynamics. You don't even have to point out that there's a complete lack of transitional forms in the fossil record. You don't even have to go there. You can go to mathematical probability and stop evolution dead in its tracks. All right, this next slide is a very scientific, biochemical-laced statement. And when I read it, I don't want you to get bogged down in organic chemistry. Okay? Just hang with me 
And I promise I'll break it down and I'll give you a bottom line. This is Frank Salisbury, who is an evolutionary biologist. He believes in evolution, hook, line, and sinker. Now we know that the cell itself is far more complex than we had imagined. It includes thousands of functioning enzymes, each a complex machine itself. Furthermore, each enzyme comes into being in response to a gene, a strand of DNA. The information content of the gene, its complexity, must be as great as the enzyme it controls. A medium protein might include about 300 amino acids. The DNA gene controlling this would have about 1,000 nucleotides in its chain. Since there are four kinds of nucleotides in a DNA chain, one consisting of 1,000 links could exist in 4 to the 1,000 power or 10 to the 600 power. This number is completely beyond our comprehension. So even Frank Salisbury, who himself is an evolutionary biologist, is staggered at this unimaginably large number. It is the number one with 600 zeros behind it. I don't even know what you call that. I can't even imagine such a large number. In other words, the odds of such a complex gene existing at all through random chance processes which is able to produce a medium-sized protein are 1 in 10 to the 600. 1 in 10 to the 600. Now, I know that that number doesn't mean a lot to you, but let me paint a picture for you. Just to give you some perspective, the total number of stars in the visible universe is only 7 times 10 to the 22nd power. And let me tell you where that number comes from. The visible universe is the universe we can see from the Earth with our telescopes and our instruments. And it comprises all the stars and galaxies whose light has had time to reach the Earth. And that is a radius in all directions of about 14 billion light years. Just picture the Earth in the center in every direction, 14 billion light years. And that's what we're talking about when we, when we say the visible universe. The total number of stars in that 28 billion light year diameter sphere is only 7 times 10 to the 22nd. Let me tell you where that number comes from so you can get an appreciation for even how large that number is. Okay, you've got 100 billion galaxies in the visible universe. Each one of them has an average of 100 billion stars in the galaxy. So you start by multiplying 100 billion times 100 billion and you get 10 to the 22nd. The reason it is now 7 times 10 to the 22nd is they just discovered that the number of stars is 7 times more than they thought previously. They've been able to see more. So when you hear the term astronomical odds, that's where it comes from. So, 10 to the 22nd. Let me just offer something up to you that I happen to know because I used to teach statistics and probability. The odds of 1 in 10 to the 40th are considered to be the realm of the absurd. <laughs> it just didn't happen that way. It will never happen. 
It's impossible. <laughs> 10 to the 40th is the realm of the absurd, which is a little bit larger than 10 to the 22nd, which describes the number of stars in the visible universe. We're talking about 10 to the 600 power. How ridiculous to believe that such a thing could happen by random chance, without a guiding hand, without intelligent design. Amen. It's foolishness. Just like it says in Romans chapter 1, professing themselves to be wise, they have become fools. Amen. You know, you can be intelligent and you can be educated, but it doesn't mean that you are wise. Glory to God. But it gets worse. Let's dig a little deeper. I've read estimates of the total number of proteins in a single human cell that range between 250,000 and a million. In a single cell. And there are 10 trillion cells on average in a human body. So imagine how many times that 10 to the 600 probability has to play out to produce something as complex as a human being. It's just not possible. It did not happen that way. Amen. Don't tell me you're intelligent if you believe that, poppycock. Look it up. That's a real word. It's also called balderdash. That's another real word. Or as the Brits would say, I think it's rubbish. Amen. All right, so if you're a scientifically minded individual, you may not be ready to climb on the creation bandwagon just yet. You're not quite ready to jump onto Adam and Eve as the father of all mankind. But I'm telling you this, as an educated man, the answer does not lie in evolutionary biology. If you're looking for an answer to the origin of man, you've got to look somewhere else, because that's not the way it happened. I'm surprised as many people as do latch onto this theory, and it's like, oh yeah, yeah, it makes all kinds of sense, yeah. It makes no sense, zero sense, even intuitively to the average human being, it doesn't make sense. One of the things that encourages me is I looked at the latest Gallup poll numbers on what people believe about evolution. Only 19% of the population, now this is just America, believe in Darwinian theory. Only 19%. That means a large percentage of Americans are just not buying evolutionary theory. As hard as the entertainment industry and the education institutions try to push it, we're just not buying it because it don't make no sense. Kind of reminds, kind of reminds me of uh, Norval Hayes. See, God don't think like we think. He's not stupid. <laughs> so if you think evolution is the real thing, you fill in the blank. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. All right. What about the space-time continuum? Big Bang Theory. Relativity. Dark energy, dark matter. Can we find those in the Bible? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. I'm glad I asked that question. <clears throat> Let's talk about Big Bang Theory. There are numerous Bible passages that describe the heavens as some sort of fabric that is being stretched out by God. I can't list them all. But it jibes quite nicely with the current understanding of the space-time continuum. 
and the Big Bang Theory, i.e. that space, time, light, matter, and energy, and gravity are all intertwined in some complex fashion that we don't quite understand. A tapestry with many different threads. Amazingly, these scriptures were written over 2,500 years before anybody even spelled space-time or thought about Big Bang Theory. One of the things that scientists use when they talk about the space-time continuum is they talk about the fabric of space-time. It is compared to a fabric. Very interesting. Especially when you read these scriptures. I'm going to rattle them off to you, and I'm going to read my favorite one. Isaiah 40, 22. Isaiah 42, 5. Isaiah 45, 12. Isaiah 51, 13. Jeremiah 10, 12. In each of these cases, the universe is described as a fabric being stretched out by God. Kind of sounds like the Big Bang to me. All right, the space-time continuum. It is God, this is Isaiah 40, 22. It is God who sits above the circle, the horizon of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It is he who stretches out the heavens like gauze curtains and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Sure sounds like the fabric of space-time to me. Yet this scripture was written Oh, 2,700 years ago? I tell you what, God knows what he's doing. If he's the one who made everything, he knows how it all works. Amen. How about special relativity, which delves into the relationship between light and time and invites the question, can we travel faster than light? That's pretty fast. That's pretty fast. If you were traveling at light speed, you could get to the moon and back in, I think, just under two seconds. It's pretty fast. So could we really move beyond light speed as easily as Star Wars depicts? That's the Millennium Falcon, for those of you that aren't Star Wars fans. Chewie and Han Solo. Not so fast. No pun intended. First Peter 3.8 says... No, it's okay. Put that up there. I want people to absorb this slide. There'll be a test afterwards. First Peter 3 8 says, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Psalm 90, verse 4 says, For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. That's a three hour period. So in Peter, 1 Peter 3.8, he says, a thousand years to the Lord could be like a day, or a day as a thousand years. It, it makes no difference to him. And then uh, it turns out Moses wrote Psalm 90. He says, uh, God says a thousand years are like a watch in the night. That's like a three-hour period. So what's that saying? I've reconciled it. I've come to terms with it. And this is what I say. If God is the author of space and time... <laughs> He can experience time at any rate he wishes or not at all because he is an eternal being. He can slip in and out of the realm of time so we can relate to him. Listen, time governs all cause and effect relationships. So time is meaningful. We need time to be able to operate in our life, right? So these scriptures introduce the concept that time can be experienced at different rates Dependent on your frame of reference, which is exactly what Einstein pondered in 1905. Isn't it amazing 
that a guy that lived that long ago came up with this. I just am astonished by that. So can we go faster than light? Let me give you Brother Scott's rendition on that. All right. According to this theory, the traveler who is approaching the speed of light, for him, time slows down. Time dilates. You know, like you shine a light in somebody's eye, their people dilates. When you approach the speed of light, time dilates. It starts passing slower for the person who's traveling close to the speed of light. Do I understand that conceptually? No, I don't. Could I show it to you mathematically in an understandable way? Yes, I could. I understand it mathematically. Conceptually, I'm still trying to wrap my arms around the fact that just because you go fast, time slows down. But there's some other things that happen when you approach the speed of light. Your mass approaches infinity. And your length contracts. So you get squattier and you get more massive. So as you approach the speed of light, you're approaching infinite mass, so you have to have a propulsion system that could provide near infinite power. And it just gets worse and worse and worse the closer you get to the speed of light. So my answer is this. We are not gonna go faster than light in the natural realm without some help from God. Just not gonna happen. I think it's personally, I think it's a barrier that God put up so that nobody slips into that other realm without permission. That's just my private little theory. Because if you look at the equation long enough, like I have, if you ever were able to get to the speed of light, time for you would come to a complete halt. It would stop altogether. I can't conceive of that. i got to have time to conceive of cause and effect. And without cause and effect, our world doesn't make a whole lot of sense. All right, enough on that. Dark energy. Because there's not enough observed energy in the universe to account for its continued expansion, it is believed that there is an unseen, invisible energy which is exerting powerful influence on the matter of the universe, propelling it outward at greater and greater speeds. Now, there's a lot of theories as to what dark energy is, but I guarantee you, God knew about it before we did. This is Hebrews 1.3 in the Amplified. It's talking about Jesus, the agent of creation. He is the sole expression of the glory of God, the light being, the outraying or radiance of the divine, and he is the perfect imprint and very image of God's nature, upholding and maintaining and guiding and propelling the universe by his mighty word of power. What's causing the universe to continue to expand? The mighty word of God. Hallelujah. Dark matter. Another mystery as we look into the heavens is there's these unexplained gravitational forces which exert themselves throughout the universe and we don't understand how that's working. For example, the tips of the spiral arms that comprise spiral galaxies. Go ahead through the galaxy up there. For example, the tips of the spiral arms that comprise spiral galaxies are spinning, are rotating at incredible velocities. Remember the Milky Way, I told you earlier, is spinning at 515,000 miles an hour. That's pretty fast. So by the laws of physics, all of these stars that are on the outer edge 
of that galaxy as it spins, they should be thrown out into open space according to the laws of physics. But something's keeping them in the galaxy. Something's keeping that galaxy together. And we've got a lot of theories as to what that is, but the leading theory is there's this invisible matter that we cannot see that exists in the universe that's exerting these gravitational forces in areas uh, where we observe it. Dark matter. I got a different rendition. Colossians 1.17 is my answer in the New Living Translation. It says, He, that is God Almighty, existed before anything else, and He holds all creation together. Amen. Colossians 1.17. Now, along these lines, I want to end with this. The prevailing belief among scientists today is that our universe consists of only 4% ordinary matter, 22% dark matter, and 74% dark energy. If that's true, that means that 96% of our universe exists in some unseen, invisible realm. Which I believe points to other dimensional realms. To the unseen realm of the spirit. And a host of other fantastic possibilities. Amen? Amen. Glory to God. No steam sighted during the whole talk. Everybody's still alive. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you would like to learn more about Faith Life Fellowship and access more of Dr. Forrest's teachings, you can visit our website at gofaithlife.com. Also, visit and like our Facebook page at Faith Life Wilmington. 